You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Review Podcast. All right, welcome back everybody to the weekly Parsha Review. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Pinchas. Pinchas is the eighth portion in the book of Numbers, in the book of Bamidbar, and the 41st portion since the beginning of the Torah. We have 168 verses in this week's Parsha. 1,887 words and 7,853 letters. There isn't an extra letter in the Torah. We have to always remember that. There are six mitzvahs in this week's parsha. There are six performative mitzvahs. And this parsha begins with Pinchas and his reward for his zealousness. So Pinchas is rewarded with a covenant of peace and is appointed a Kohen for his bold and zealous action of executing Zimri and the princess Cosby to preserve Hashem's honor. Pinchas was the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, and was not included in the original selection of Kohanim. No other person would ever get this honor. Hashem tells Moshe to treat the Midianites as enemies and battle them and retaliate at them for luring the Jews to sin. It's one of the things that Hashem hates most, is those who influence others to sin. The census then begins. Hashem talks to Moshe and Elazar, the son of Aaron Akohen. Elazar, if you remember from last week's Torah portion, was appointed to be the replacement for Aaron after he died. And is they're commanded to this new census in preparation for entering into the land of Israel. Each tribe and their families are listed, and Moshe and Elazar count the men between ages 20 and 60, respectively, and we'll see that when we look here on our notes, for those of you who are watching online or listening to this broadcast on podcast, in the description section, the notes below, you'll have the link to follow along with us in this weekly partial review handout. So you'll notice that some of the tribes grew over the 40 years, and some of the, uh, some of the tribes shrunk over the 40 years. As you'll see, Reuven, for example, had 43,630, but back 40 years ago when we counted them, there were 46,500. The tribe of Shimon, you see the biggest contrast, and that is 22,200 now, but previously 59,300. And as we remember, the 24,000 people who died in the plague of all of those who sinned with the Midianites uh, was 24,000 from the tribe of Shimon. That's a lot of people they lost in this plague. But we see that Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda, grew by almost 2,000, 76,500 now and previously 74,600. And if you see each of the 12 tribes uh, vary in their numbers of growth and or reduction, but we have to understand something, is that the Jewish people in Egypt had special miracles that gave them the ability, we know that it was Shisha Bekeres Echad, there were six, six tuplets in every labor. Every woman who gave birth, every Jewish woman, they tried to kill us, they tried to destroy us, they tried to kill our babies. We had special miracles where the women would have six babies per pregnancy. So the total census of the tribes is 601,730. And if you remember previously, it was 603,550 of military age men between the ages of 20 and 60. 
Then Hashem declares that only the aforementioned tribes shall receive inheritance of the land. Moshe divides the land with a lottery that miraculously matched each tribe to its proper location and proper size. The tribe of Levi, males over the age of 30 days, are counted by Moshe and Elazar, and they are 23,000 Levites total. And if you remember previously, there were 22,200. The Levites will not receive a portion of the Holy Land, but will have 48 towns for residence throughout the land. The five daughters of Tzlafchad, a very interesting story that the five daughters of Tzlafchad who were Machla, Noah, Chagla, Milka, and Tirzah of the tribe of Menashe, they asked Moshe and Elazar for their portion of the land. Since their father had no sons, their father died in the desert, they too wanted a portion of the land. So Moshe asks Hashem for guidance, and Hashem agrees with the justified claims of the daughters of Tzlafchad, Hashem tells Moshe the laws and priorities and order of inheritance for all generations. So this doesn't only apply with the inheritance of the land of Israel, but this also applies to all inheritance that isn't pre-described by someone who passes away prior to their death. There is still a Torah commandment of how the priorities of inheritance work. Hashem invites Moshe to see the beautiful and holy land of Israel from atop Mount Avarim, and Hashem reiterates the reason for the punishment that Moshe and Aaron received, a not glorifying Hashem's name by hitting the rock instead of speaking to it. In essence, Moshe is told to prepare for his death, because just like Aaron in last week's Torah portion died without entering into the land of Israel, Hashem is telling Moshe, and Moshe knows that after 40 years, the Jewish people are going to be entering into the land of Israel, But what's interesting is that now we are only about a year away from the Jewish people entering the land. So within the next year, Moshe is going to die. Now, as we know, we're almost beginning the book of Deuteronomy. And what's going to happen is, is that once we start the book of Deuteronomy, the entire book of Deuteronomy is only 36 days, the last 36 days of Moshe's life. So Moshe is already getting into preparation mode for passing on from this world. And here is where Hashem prepares him for that time that is coming. Moshe, understanding this, asks for a successor who can lead the Jewish people after his tenure ends. Hashem tells Moshe to command and ordain Yehoshua, the son of Nun, as the subsequent leader of the Jewish people, and to do so in front of Elazar and the entire assembly of the Jewish people, the children of Israel. And Moshe did as Hashem commanded. Then Hashem commands Moshe the special public sacrifices and offerings to be performed in the temple. We have the Karban Tamid, which is the daily continual offering. We have the Shabbos Musaf offering. We have the Rosh Chodesh, the new moon offering. We have Pesach Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and Shmini Atzeres offerings, and then personal offerings like from vows, free will, meal offerings, libations, and peace offerings are also mentioned in the end of this week's Parsha. And then Moshe teaches everything to the Jewish people as he was commanded. Okay, so now, my dear friends, the important lessons from this week's Parsha section. The first thing we need to point out is that 
You know, when we talk about a zealous person, usually it's in a negative way. Oh, he's a zealot. And we have to understand that sometimes in every single trait that we talk about, there's always a positive way in which this trait can be demonstrated and a negative way in which this trait can be demonstrated. So, for example, when we talk about the trait of zealousness or even the trait of kindness, kindness, everyone associates kindness with good things. It's a good trait. But too much kindness is not good. Too much kindness is not good. Someone who gives away everything he has and doesn't take care of his own family is not kind. And we have to understand that every trait needs a balance. There is a good zealot, and that was Pinchas. Pinchas demonstrated he had no personal gain from this. He had no axe to grind. He had no interest in hurting anybody. He did it for the sake of Hashem. That is a holy zealot. That is someone who, again, with the absolute purity of heart, he did it to preserve Hashem's glory and Hashem's honor. And that is the reward that he got was befitting for his action. So we have to understand this and we have to internalize this. Anger, anger is not a good trait, but there are times our sages tell us that anger is a very good trait. Just because a trait is a good trait or a bad trait doesn't mean there isn't a reverse of it. So even a completely bad trait like anger, there is a right time where anger is appropriate. I'll give you an example. Your child, we mentioned this previously, but if your child runs into the street, so you want to demonstrate a face of anger so that the child knows this is not good. Anger itself is not a good trait, but there's a right time to show it. There's a right time when the display of anger is the correct thing to do. So let's take this to heart that every trait, a good trait, a bad trait, has its balance. And we need to be the ones to find that proper balance. Pinchas here demonstrated by, as you remember from last week, he killed Zimri ben Salu and Kazbi Bastsur. She was the princess, a Midianite princess, who was aiming, whose goal was to make the Jewish people sin with the Midianite women. And this is the reason that Pinchas went with his spear and he killed them both so that nobody should have any questions of why did you do this? Everybody saw what was going on and this was a demonstration of God's glory, of God's kingship in the world that came through the hands of Pinchas. So we see another counting of the Jewish people. And we mentioned this previously this week. This book that we're learning right now is the book of Numbers. In, in English, we call it the book of Numbers. But it's called Bamidbar. The Jewish people were in the desert. Why do we call it the book of Numbers? because the Jewish people are being counted so many times in the book of Bamidbar. We're being counted time and again. Now, why are the Jewish people counted so many times? Because something which is precious, you count frequently. When you have something that's precious, you count it frequently. And the Jewish people are very precious to the Almighty. But there's another reason here, and that is to identify the drop in population. We see that the Jewish people decline in numbers. We lost almost 2,000 people, over 2,000 people from the previous count of 40 years ago to the count now. 
Our sages tell us it's important for us to always know that there is a concept of reward and punishment. When the Jewish people did good, they got good. When the Jewish people did not do good, they got punished. And here we see the tribe of Shimon, for example, they lost 24,000 people. 24,000 people. Because they sinned. They did something which was inappropriate. And Hashem operates with us in a hand of kindness and in a hand of judgment. And that's what we need to always understand, that Hashem wants what's good for us. Hashem wants what's best for us. We're not only here on a physical plane in this world. We're also having, we have a spiritual realm that operates around us. What is that spiritual realm? That is our neshama, our soul. And our soul is here to perfect itself. How do we perfect itself? With our body that will take it from place to place and do the things that come up throughout our lifetime to give it that opportunity, that potential of perfection. If God sees that someone is abusing the opportunities that come their way, God says, you know what? It's better for them to come to me now and preserve the holiness of their soul than defile it more with the body that I gave them. So it's not is a very a super simplification of this whole idea of why people die young, et cetera, et cetera, and why there are tragedies in this world, and we should never know of any of those. But it's a bigger picture than just how our eyes see, well, someone who's old dies and someone who's young lives. That's not the case. We're not physical beings. We're spiritual beings that are being carried around by a physical body. Okay, so then we see that there's true transparency in the leadership of the Jewish people. First is, we're the only nation that doesn't rely on a revelation by an individual who claims to have had some type of interaction with the Almighty. Right? Muhammad had a dream, and if you don't believe him, he's going to kill you. And uh, the other religions are all based on an individual's claim to a revelation, a godly revelation. The Jewish people are not like that. The Jewish people have a public revelation where God speaks to the entire people at Mount Sinai. The entire people saw it. The entire people witnessed Hashem's revelation at Mount Sinai where God spoke to us. It wasn't just a single person, a Moshe, who says, believe me, take my word for it because I'm going to kill you otherwise. No, it is a revelation that was the entire Jewish people. Okay, everybody knows that Moshe is the leader. Everybody knows God chose Moshe as the leader. Okay, now what's with the next leader? Who's going to decide who the next leader of the Jewish people is going to be? We know that there's a God. There was a public revelation, the only religion to have a public revelation. We know that Moshe is the leader because God said so. But now Moshe says, before I die, if I don't have my successor in place now already, there could be a disaster. There could be a problem in the chain of custody of the Jewish people. Who is going to listen to the leader if he's not chosen by the Almighty already in advance. So this Moshe wants this transparency so that the Jewish people don't have a conflict of leadership, that they don't have an issue, a transfer of power 
that isn't appropriate. And then you're going to have a you can have a split, and then you're going to have a problem with leadership. You can have a, a divisiveness among the Jewish people that's uncalled for. Moshe was a true leader. Moshe didn't look at at it as being this is my throne, this is my leadership, and they say that the best leaders are the leaders who make the organization succeed after they leave. You see, what many people think is that to show good leadership is that when I was there, it was successful. But once I left, the whole place fell apart. You see, I was a good leader. No, that's not a good leader. A good leader is someone who sets a a path that it could succeed once they leave as well. And that's what Moshe was. Moshe was a good leader. He says, I'm going to die one day. We know this. The Torah tells us this. But guess what? He prepares for the Jewish people the next leader already now. That in Joshua was anointed to be the leader as soon as Moshe departs. We see another thing is that Moshe is being prepared for his death. And I think that this is something we learned way back in Parshas Vayechi, in the 12th portion of the Torah, where we see that Jacob died after being sick. You know, there was no death that came after sickness. It was just a sudden death. Everybody had a sudden death occur to them. They would sneeze and they would die, which is why today we say, to gesund, gesundheit, bless you when someone sneezes, because it's a sign that we want it to be a blessing of life, not the alternative, God forbid. So why did Jacob pray to be sick, to have an illness prior to death? Because he wanted it to be a merciful notification for a person prior to death so that they can prepare for their death. Imagine if a person just died out of the thin air. A person just collapsed and died. And he had no preparation, no illness to prepare him for it, to prepare the family, to guide the family, to work on the inheritance like we see in this week's Parsha. These are things that are important for each and every one of us to prepare for our death. We all have a beginning date, a start date, and we all have an end date a day where we will expire and not to live in a in a in a world where we think we're going to live forever that day is going to come and let's be prepared for it here we learn from Moshe the incredible mitzvah to prepare for our death how do we prepare not by getting depressed not not by getting sad by number 1 guaranteeing that we live a life that is filled and enriched with mitzvahs to give ourselves the opportunity to have an enriched life filled with authentic good deeds, good actions, learning Torah, doing kindness to our fellow man, and also preparing so that our future generations can carry on our legacy. And this is something which is so critically important for us to not think of life as being, yeah, today I'm alive and that's good, but there will be a day where we won't be here. And to take it into consideration, and if anybody wants help discussing this, we can talk about this privately. You can reach out to me, you can email me, you can call me, and we'll happily talk about this. Then we see that Moshe leaves an inheritance for us, and that is Moshe's desire to enter the land. 
You see, Moshe understood that if he entered the land, there are some uh, commentaries that say that Moshe intentionally hit the rock knowing that his punishment would be that he won't be able to enter the land. He did it intentionally. Why? So that he can leave his desire to enter the land as an inheritance for the Jewish people. What does that mean? Moshe knew that the way in which he dies is the way in which his legacy will live on forever. And if Moshe entered the land of Israel, so the Jewish people would be satisfied that they're in the land of Israel, but they won't appreciate it as much. Instead, Moshe says, I'm ready to give up my own privilege, my own opportunity of entering the land of Israel so that my descendants forever and ever, 3,300 years from now, when they're living in Houston, Texas, or wherever they may be, every Jew is going to have a desire to go back to Israel. It's the craziest thing. Why do people have a desire to go to the land of Israel? You see people from India who live in the United States say, oh, I can't wait to go back to India. I can't wait to go back to India. I've never heard anyone say that. Or to go back to Canada. I'm from Canada. I can't wait to go back to Canada. Maybe it's nice to visit here and there, but you don't hear this thing, this like, this aliyah, people are moving back to their to their homeland. This is the blessing. This is the inheritance for Moshe. Moshe gave us this inheritance, the desire to want to be back in the land of Israel. We have to understand that we have an unbelievable privilege. We can go, we can go on United.com, you can go on Delta, you can go on any of these airlines and just buy a ticket to go to, to our homeland, to our holy land, to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a tremendous privilege that we have, and we should utilize this privilege to go to the land of Israel and to see it and to walk it. Okay, another thing that we see is that Moshe, as soon as the daughters of Tzlavcha talk about their inheritance, Moshe immediately, Hashem says, oh, by the way, come up to Mount Avarim and take a look at the land that you're not entering into. Why? Because Moshe started asking, he says, you know, the daughters of Tzlavcha are getting their land. Maybe this is an opportunity for me to negotiate my way back in and to get my part of the land. Hashem says, no, no, no. You can look at the land, but you can't enter it. Right? You can look at it and not enter it. To only add to his desire to go into the land and to leave it as a greater inheritance for the Jewish people. But our sages tell us, and we're going to see this later in Parshas Vaschanan, in the book of Deuteronomy, that Moshe prayed hundreds and hundreds of times to enter into the land of Israel. Moshe had such a craving, such a desire to enter into the land of Israel, he prayed hundreds of times for this privilege. Didn't merit to it, but he never stopped praying for it. And when we want something, we should know that we should never stop praying. Just because the answer is no doesn't mean you stop asking. And we can take an example from children. They say children are the best fundraisers. You know why? Because when you say no, they don't stop asking. Imagine you have a child. He says, can I have a lollipop? Can I have a snack? Can I have a treat? You say no. They say, oh, come on. Can I have a treat? Can I have a candy? Can I have a... They, they don't stop. Just because you said no doesn't mean anything. It means I ask more. And that's the way we need to learn the same trait of how we ask from the Almighty things. We should never stop asking. The next thing is we see that the first offering that's mentioned in all the offerings is the daily offering, the karban tamid, the continual offering. 
You need to have a consistency. You need to have a, a continuum, an ongoing steadiness. This is demonstrated by our prayers that we have every day. Our prayers are a replacement for the offerings. Because we don't have the carbon Talmud, because we don't have the ongoing continual offerings that were brought at the temple, we have prayer instead of that. Prayer is our grounding. As a people, we have three prayers a day on a regular weekday, morning, afternoon, and evening, to constantly remind us, to constantly ground us, to constantly instill within us our priorities and our responsibilities. This is our job. Our job is to have a consistency in our relationship with God, a constant. It's important for us to keep ourselves grounded. And then finally, we see that in all the offerings, it's very special. We have the Pesach offering, the Shavuot offering, the Rosh Hashanah, the Yom Kippur. Comes the Sukkot offering, the holiday of Sukkot, and it's very, very different. The holiday of Sukkot has 70 offerings that are brought. 70 offerings. Why so many offerings? No other holiday has so many offerings. Our sages tell us Sukkot is a demonstration of the action of the Jewish people. You see, we have many, many holidays that are celebrating a specific event. For example, we have Pesach, which celebrates our exodus. Shavuot demonstra- celebrates our revelation, our relationship with Hashem at Mount Sinai, and that we carry along every single day. Sukkot demonstrates what precedes it, which is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that we are putting into action our best step forward. We're taking an, a, a, an accounting of last year, we weren't so perfect, perhaps. We got used to our ways. Sukkot comes, we leave our homes, we leave our comforts, we leave our consistency that we mentioned just before, and we change it up. We go into a sukkah. We go into our little huts, and we say, before we go back into our homes in this new year, we're going to change our ways. We're not going to take things for granted. We're not going to live a life that is just filled with ordinary, mundane, running after our desires. What do we do? We leave our homes. But in the process, we take a a special moment to recognize that if the nations of the world sinned, the 70 nations of the world, it's our fault as well. Not only if we sinned, it's our fault. But if the nations of the world sin, it's our fault. Why is it our fault? Because it's our job to be a light unto the nations. It's our job to be an example for the nations. And if the nations of the world sinned, it's because we haven't done our job properly. So what do we do? We bring an offering in each day of the holiday of Sukkot for each of the 70 nations. So yes, the other nations... We take responsibility for their mistakes. And that's why we brought the 70 offerings. And that's why specifically on the holiday of Sukkot, we brought these offerings to remind the Jewish people, you are held accountable for other people's mistakes. That if other people don't see a good example in you, you're going to be held accountable. 
So, my dear friends, this concludes the weekly Parsha review for Parsha's Pinchas. I urge you and I encourage you to take a Chumash, to take the book of the Torah and read through it. Read it in the English. If you don't understand the Hebrew or the Aramaic, read it. The Stone Edition Chumash of Art Scroll is beautiful. The commentaries are magnificent to give us a clarity, to give us an understanding. My dear friends, have a magnificent Shabbos. Thank you so much for joining us.